Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 27 of Birth of Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me, I've got Rachel Austin. She's a midwife. She's also a cotton grower in central Queensland. Rachel and I worked together on the Bush Baby campaign, which was a media campaign that we started in 2018 around all the closures, um, particularly uh, in Rachel's area. I'll let her explain a little bit more about um, her particular issue, but we have seen the stats say we've had 40% of rural birthing services and even some regional um, services close, and as a result of that, we've had a 200% increase in born before arrivals. Now, what else did some of that data say, Rachel, that came out around that time? Yeah, hi, Alicia. Um, thanks for having me today. Look, it's been really, it's been quite devastating for, for, rural, um, for rural hospitals who have had maternity services closed. Uh, you know, the risk now is all is all on women as the centralisation of birth. So all the rural and regional women are moving or having to be relocated into the cities to have to have their babies or bigger uh, regional towns, which are often, you know, hundreds of kilometres away from from women's towns. In Theodore, um, the maternity services were closed down after the, the big floods that affected the whole of Queensland. That was in 2010, 2011. And then we had... Uh, million, millions of dollars spent on refurbishing the, the maternity and the birthing suite and getting it back up and running. And as that was completed uh, and we were due to be reopened, executive management of Central Queensland Hospital Health shut maternity services down and made it a level one. Uh, so we could no longer birth or plan to birth uh, locally. And that is a huge risk for local women. They've now got to plan their lives around uplifting their families, relocating somewhere else to give birth. And that can mean walking away from farms and who looks after and manages those. Or if they stay, do they uh, travel, you know, in labour to the the next hospital? There's a lot of risk around that. Lots of babies being born before arrival, like you said. Um, You know, and this is the sheer cost of having to live away if they choose to live away. Yeah, and if we because I know some of the data that had come out and it's and it's one of those things bureaucrats argue the opposite, but it was very very raw data. So a couple of things that had sparked my interest when I really was like we need to get media over this was the the two studies I just mentioned. There was some raw data I seen in a Facebook group that had subsequently been deleted, but I'd screenshot it which was enough to send to the journalist and obviously because of the issues with Theodore being closed. So there was kind of I guess a nice lot of intersect in three different
different areas. But some of the data I had seen was there was a fourfold variance between babies. Um, so the m- mortality rate of babies born in areas or towns um, without maternity services compared to maternity services. So basically four times the amount of babies were dying. Um, I know the bureaucrats say that this isn't true, but that was some of the data that I had seen from pretty reputable sources at the time, like the Rural Doctors Association of Queensland. Um, Can you explain, I I guess, perhaps the variances between what the bureaucrats decided and what RDAQ was saying at the time? I think I know the study you're talking about. It was a small study, and if I remember correctly, I think it was based up in Mariba. Um, Look, the increase in risk for women is really around um, not having continuity midwifery care, having that fragmented type care where you, you may have a GP, for example, who is attending uh, to antenatal cares, but it may not be that that's really much of an interest for them or they're not obstetric trained uh, and things are getting missed. Um, you know, so there's no one actually with a specialist skill set such as a midwife providing that continuity of care, collaborating with other specialists like your, your obstetricians or, you know, your dietitian or who, who, whatever allied health it may be necessary for that woman's unique care, what she needs. Uh, so things get missed and, and not picked up on. So when we... We see birthing services close, um, and this happened a lot during the 90s, and it's not particularly a uh, side of politics problem. It's actually we've seen because it's happened in all states in Australia. What has happened through the central, because that's a term that would be used, like centralising services, like city lights is safer mantra. We haven't actually seen that, but, but what are some of the issues when not just with maternity but for your whole health system that you've noticed when we remove birthing services? Birthing is still fundamentally, it is a a physiological event, a normal physiological event for women. A small percentage of women do need to go on and have that tertiary type care and, you know, the operating theatres or the NICUs or the special cares or whatever that might mean. But birthing is still, um, it's hormonally based. We need to see oxytocin. We don't want to see adrenaline and stress. That just creates more risk uh, for, for mothers and for the baby. Uh, so, so we, you know, most women who have, who have that known midwife from early pregnancy right the way through to labour birth and into postnatal care, about six weeks postnatal care, when that midwife knows that woman so well and she's working with her, she can listen and detect and and know when care needs to be escalated. When you have fragmented care in a hospital, you now have a stranger looking after you. You might actually have multiple people looking after you. Uh, That's a high-stress environment, you know, bright lights, lots of noise, machines. It's a lot of adrenaline. We're seeing women who move away from home are actually electing to be induced, not medically but for personal reasons because they need to get home again. Uh, or they're electing to have caesareans because they just can't wait for labour to start. And that risk then, there's lots of risks associated with that, the cascade of intervention, you know, and then that affects mothers 
physical health, mental health can affect their breastfeeding journey. Uh, and, you know, often women are walking away from birth now with post-traumatic stress or postnatal depression uh, and, and lots of breastfeeding complications. So, so we know that basically hospitals have levels and Theodore has gone from a level two, which was, is basically midwifery-led and you've got GP obstetric back up. Back up. Now, for those outside of Queensland, it's not that common, but we actually have a pretty good system where GPs can up skill to offer basic obstetric stuff, including caesareans though. Um, However, we know that the data says that we don't always need a GP obstetrician on call. And I think this is where um, consumers and rural doctors don't always agree uh, because we know, and I'll, I'll ask you to explain the evidence more, but basically do we actually need to have caesarean facilities to be able to birth, uh, for women to birth in these rural locations? I don't believe we need to have it. Um, it it's great to have it there as a backup. Uh, I think it, if it's needed, we can always get staff in to staff for that caesarean because you often, you, and again, there's always different level of caesarean emergency. Uh, does it need to be done now, like with un, under 10 minutes or can it wait two or three hours, depending how emergent it is. And often we've got time to, to bring people in. But, again, if you've got a midwife who's looking after you, a midwife is a specialist in normal birth. They will provide emergency care and backup uh, and support, uh, and then we get in, in help as well We're from your GP uh, obstetrician. You don't have to have a GP obstetrician at your birth to be safe. But, again, that midwife will be working with you to work out your level of risk and what that is that that final number mean for your unique situation yeah I wholeheartedly agree and I I think for these rural centers it becomes quite expensive and not even appealing for these GP obstetricians to sit there for for a finite number of births per year whereas if we look at say Canada in the Inuit communities where they've got really good transfer pathways and this is where I think that a lot of the doctor's fail to recognise that when we've got good systems for transfer, birth can happen safely even if it does escalate outside of high risk, uh, outside of low risk and becomes more of a higher risk. But I think they're also negating like the, the huge skill set that not just midwives have, but particularly when you've got that continuing midwifery care relationship with the woman and you know her and her baby well, that you can start to see things well and truly before they deviate into that, you know, holy shit. Um, kind of space. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and it's a really good example too because they're eight hours flight from the next um, tertiary centre. Uh, and, and nowhere in Australia is that far by flight. No, and I think um, we need to be looking definitely to other countries and how they're doing it right rather than look to, say, smaller European countries um, and go, oh, but, you know, it's only 30 minutes to, you know, the nearest tertiary centre. We need to actually compare, I guess, like for like in these instances because we know that there are great outcomes. And I keep going back to some services have got to be better than offering women nothing at all. As in, if you have, you know, amazing midwives who have that relationship with the woman, how is that not better than having nothing just because the doctors want, the condition of having midwives there to be that there is a doctor overseeing it as well. It, it's completely. Part of it is actually not a, I don't think the woman even comes into it or her family. I think it's just risk mitigation through lawyers. 
and and not wanting a responsibility. And I guess if there's a plan B in place, and that and that plan B would mean, well, you can't have local birthing services. You, we are going to provide you to go to town B, whatever that may be, and that's our plan. But what happens, you know, is the woman who holds the risk. It's her her partner that's driving on the road in the middle of the night while it's raining and there's ruse and there's, you know, she's in labour or maybe she's she's labouring really fast and and she's not going to make it and now they're they're giving birth together on the side of the road, and if it's probably it's probably all happening quite quickly and quite okay, but in that moment that's terrifying if you're not planned for it. Yes, and and I think we should point that out. There are some women who decide to birth at home. Um, unassisted and you know and and if that's what they want that's great but a lot of these women they don't plan for it and it is quite terrifying um for those who are interested if you google the bush baby crisis uh, we had a piece on the project it was probably 18 month media campaign you'll see heaps of pictures including women who've got back like they're on a towel on the gravel on the side of their road and that's where they birth their baby now that would have to be um, probably the last place I would want to be birthing and completely terrifying because you haven't had the planning and, you know, there's no, I guess, basic skill set. Yes, we, we, you know, women's bodies can birth. We can go down that line. But as far as, you know, like I, I've had this baby, like what am I looking out for? Is, is the baby breathing and, you know, and, and a bleed and things like that, that women who plan to birth unassisted at home actually usually do a little bit of research and, and prepare for? I think I do an extensive amount of research and, and really have contingency plans in place. Uh, and, you know, when you're out on the road, my goodness, you're fully exposed. Imagine being on the, on the you know, beside the road and a big brown snake comes along. I mean, we live in Queensland. Well, we live in Australia. I mean, there's likely to be a snake not too far away. Yeah, it's... um. Lots of lots of things to still, yeah, and to still work on despite this. I, I honestly, doing my research and looking back, I think it was one of the biggest uh, maternity campaigns we've ever seen in the country. We had a rural maternity task force. They did write a report. Um, I was particularly keen to see, um, and obviously for those outside of Queensland, this is a good opportunity to listen and I guess maybe draw some inspiration of what potential you can do when you've got, you know, a good amount of research, I guess, to back you up, which it's there, some good case studies. But what's happened um, in your neck of the woods, Rachel, as far as, because I know some of the story was that your community raised $80,000 for that maternity unit, massive upgrade after the floods. We had this um, maternity task force report that there was to be no more rural closures, and I'll talk to that because I think that there has been some since um, without the Minister's permission. But I thought there was a commitment to reopen or at least pilot for uh, rural units. Uh, was that the case? And I thought Theodore would be up the top of that list. Um, what's happened since? So with the pilot site, Theodore was a pilot site, and that was to that was to um – implement the recommendations of the clinical excellence in their report. So then they've applied the rural birthing index to that and gone through and that's how they've got to um, bringing Theodore back and staying at a level one. Can you explain for Uh, listeners, because that's a really good resource that a lot of people don't know about. I was actually working with a political party this morning about their federal election campaign and they were like, oh, so do we just like write down that women should be within an hour of their 
their local maternity services, which seems good in theory. But if you've got three births a year, you're not going to have a midwife that's going to want to work out there. Um, oh. but, but, you know, like how does this rural um, birthing index work? Because I think it is really, really ba- valuable across Australia and what political parties and, and bureaucrats should be going to first um, before we do any more reviews or anything like that, like the the information, the evidence is there on how we should be restructuring maternity services. Look, it's really it's really a very comprehensive tool uh, and they look at population, um, staffing, services available. Uh, and look, it, it's really very comprehensive. For Theodore, they've, they've applied it and come to the conclusion that we don't have the population to warrant having maternity services. We find that really quite disappointing because Theodore is right on the bridge of um, two HHSs. So we have so we're at the end, but then we have often through mothers coming over to Theodore, but because they're in a separate HHS, they're not allowed to be included in the data. So is it really a real true representation of the numbers that come to Theodore? Well, I don't believe that it was. Uh, and that and Yes, they're two different HHSs, but I don't think it's reasonable to, to put that line in the sand and, and count them differently because like, we actually cross lines. Being that it is rural and they're closer geographically than the other town in the other direction, it just actually makes sense to, to, to count those numbers in for Theodore. And just for context, Tarum used to have birthing, Miles, which is out there, you know, like all those little, uh, yeah. I shouldn't say, they weren't tiny towns, they're certainly rural towns. But they all used to have, yeah, yeah. And particularly when you've got like big agriculture, we've probably, you know, in some of these areas we've got gas now as well. But that it's where we produce our food and fibre and and we have to have some kind of services to support these families. I mean, what they do for the Australian economy is amazing. Like behind um, like coal, gas, that kind of um, export. The next biggest export is ac- actually agriculture, and I find it. I'm actually, if I was still farming, I'd be there'd be the sixth generation of farmers in my family. But I find it extremely disappointing on how much you all collectively inject into the economy. Yet your, the services that you get provided are so almost third world um, in some instances. And this is why rural people have a greater risk of death and morbidity and mortality. Yeah, so... Come back to lack of service. Yeah, and I think that we perhaps in more metro areas, I like to consider myself regional. There are some farms here, but I'm on the Sunshine Coast now. Um, I, I think it's a good reminder of how valuable our farmers are, yet how little we actually return back to them as far as services go. And when we lose maternity from these areas, and I grew up uh, just west of Tara or Dolby or Toowoomba, depending on how well you know Queensland, <laughs> probably the next dearest towns, um, you know, sheep, cattle, cropping out that way. Prior to me, there was like my my parents or one of my parents was born in the local town, one of my grandparents, you know, that was just the thing. Um, my brother was born in the local town and then maternity services closed. Now, what I notice about that town now is that that hospital, there's no blood on, you know, on site, no surgery. Like 
Once maternity services left, it really just became a holding bay for the ambulance to transfer to the next nearest town or just a geriatric unit waiting where the old people go to wait for a place in the retirement, like village or town or whatever. What is that what you've noticed um, when you've done a bit of research or what you're hearing from other towns as well? Yeah, look, I think that would be can, can happen very, very easily because you're losing a valuable skill set staff as well. For example, Theodore went from having uh, four or five midwives and now they've got one. So um, I was forced to leave after uh, fighting for rural services in Theodore, maternity services in Theodore. Others have left for uh, their own personal reasons and probably because there is no job there for them with uh, as a midwife. You don't stay in a position if you can't practice your skill set. So that leaves with, you know, a whole a lot of midwives, experienced people who have now left. When you're running a hospital, you want to have lots of lots of skills. So, you know, not only your midwives, but your nurses are looking at, you know, from A&E to medical to, to maybe basic surgical if they're still offering that, from paediatric care right the way through to palliative care. Uh, and... and and when you start reducing services, like I said, blood is gone, so emergency services are gone. Uh, you're really just patching up and sending them on a plane or in the back of an ambulance. I think it would be very easy to start losing valuable services at, at rural hospitals. And then again, that comes with its own risk as well. Um, you know, and again, it, it, it creates further distance. You're looking at increased morbidity and mortality. Rural people really do suffer. Yeah, you get a, a decent motorbike accident um, and there's no, you know, like the 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 GP doesn't have that kind of like emergency skill set. You've got no blood, you know. Yeah, it's I, – I know. After a motorbike accident with a young fellow when I was not – I was young out nursing uh, in a rural hospital and so he come in not breathing so we had him um, – had him tubed and we were bagging him because he wasn't breathing uh, so I was a new RN. I had an enrolled nurse who had just graduated, I think, the week before, and the doctor who was not long graduated. Um, and But we did have an operating theatre. The RSDS was eight hours away, so we were bagging him for eight hours. We were putting in chest tubes, and honestly, I did never feel that that boy would ever survive. But, I mean, he must have had somebody looking over him because he did. Um but my goodness, you know, what a frightening scenario to have to be in. And I would never want anybody to have to do what I did then because that really was terrifying. Um, and, you know, we say that, the, you know, emergency care, we can get in an ambulance or get the plane in or the chopper in. But the reality is they're not always just there. They, that In that instance, you know, that was a busy day. They could, I think there was an accident somewhere or something happened and it was delayed by eight hours. But bagging someone for eight hours, that was... Um, that was just awful. So let's just quickly go back to the level one that Theodore is now. So mm. level two, so basically for those who don't understand the lingo, we have a framework around maternity services and what they offer basically. So I guess if we look at what the bare minimum as far as as, as birth and being able to do caesareans, and this is mainly – um, they filter out women in this instance for level two to make sure that basically le- uh, level two is still low risk, but there is cesarean um, facilities or services available. So at a level one, 
Is it now pre and postnatal? And what happens to the women, A, that just refuse to leave town, um, so birth there anyway, or things are happening really, really quickly and they're not going to make it to the nearest town? Like where's the nearest town for Theodore and, and what is happening to these women that go, you know, I'm not relocating, I'm not just not going to do it? Yeah, and they're really good questions. So Theodore is a level one. It's antenatal and postnatal care, but that will be delivered now from, um, they're calling it the continuity of midwifery care from Banana Shire. So those midwives will come from Billabilla, which is an hour and 15 away. So there's uh, one midwife in Theodore, um, and I'm not sure how that will work, but, but maybe she will do antenatal and postnatal care as part of that hub. Um, I'm, these details are yet to be released yet. I think they're still ironing those out. Um, so there's no cesarean, no birthing, no planned birthing. But if a woman was to come in um, pushing, basically, they were or too late to leave, uh, a registered nurse would, would have to help her give birth. There may or may not be uh, a GP with obstetrics around, uh, or it may just be a GP with no obstetrics. Yeah, wow. Um, so nurse, nurses have four hours of training in imminent birth. Oh, I was just going to ask that, like as far as level one, to then be saying that level one's deliverable by nurses with four hours training. I mean, most mothers, like me, myself, having five babies, have probably have more experience in birth than a four-hour well, short course. I remember, as again, as a young nurse working in a hospital that where maternity had been shut down, uh, I couldn't get the midwives in call and I had a woman coming in having her eighth baby and I was all of like 20, never had children myself. And she says, I'm in labour. I'm like, oh, shit. Anyway, the doctor says, no, you're not in labour. And I think within five minutes of him saying that, there was a baby, baby, baby in her arms. And um, it's it just that I knew that because I had always been taught, you don't ever tell a, a mum who's had children before not to push her that she's not in labour. And she did. She had a baby in her arms in under five minutes. But the most frightening thing for me, because I had never really seen a vaginal birth prior to that. Um, and, I, you know, again, I would hate to see nurses having to help mums give birth. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's reasonable. I mean, better than nobody. But realistically, a, midwife, a, a nurse does not understand how to assess a hemorrhage, how to treat a hemorrhage. You know, what if the, there's a, an obstetric emergency? This person doesn't know how to do that. I mean, and the chances of it happening are probably small because she's gone into labour on her own. She's probably going to, you know, progress quite quickly and, and go on to have a normal birth and a healthy baby. But she may not either. And, and I think that's a big responsibility, a big professional responsibility for a nurse who's not trained in midwifery to have to deal with that. Yeah, phenomenal really given that that. The bureaucrats and I'm, I'm assuming ministers think that this is okay. Given, like you look at the, um, but you look at the, you, you look at then private midwifery and the regulation that goes on there, like the over regulation, um, and yet it's okay for, for nurses to have four hours training and birth babies. Yet private midwives, you know, like they have to be almost like babysat from medical lobbying point of view you know we have to have collaborative arrangements and all these various layers so you know it obviously it's just when it suits them <laughs> they can deregulate oh, and yeah absolutely yeah absolutely you know, I, I just and, and we've been very um 
um, honest in saying that the whole time. We do not want registered nurses helping mothers catch babies. We do not want registered nurses helping out with antenatal care and postnatal care. They should not be helping mothers breastfeed and, and doing these things because, or, or doing checks and neonatal checks or heel pricks. Or, that is not reasonable practice. Uh, unless they've done, you know, a specialty in, in pediatrics, child health or something where they can actually work with babies. They shouldn't be working with mothers and babies. I often think too um, that hospitals are for sick people and if you've got nurses doing this kind of stuff with well women okay. and their babies, like imagine the pathogens and things like that that these babies and women are potentially going to be exposed to during quite a vulnerable time as well. Um one of the reasons I founded this podcast was because I've looked at feminism and a lot of birth stuff through the feminist lens and I see that certain, you know, areas of politics or, or feminism because there's almost as many schools of feminism as there is churches. But in some areas, um, they're all about reproductive rights, yet I'm like, well, birth is also part of the reproductive rights, yet it's often forgotten. And then I look at like the rural areas and how, I guess, yes, um, the health services in rural areas are embarrassing, but also particularly for maternity, like how can we just let our mothers, a very vulnerable group, be left so unserviced? What's your opinion on why birth is the forgotten feminist issue? I think we like to treat women like little tick boxes and make it make it easy. But the reality is we're all unique individuals with our own history and our own, you know, uh, uh, um, what, what we bring into birth. It's not just the physical, it's the emotional, it's what's happening in the day to day. There's lots of things that, that, that matter. Uh, but we don't like to look at women like that. We like to process them through a system that's tick boxes um, and, and not complicate things so, so the paperwork is easier. And I, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's reasonable. Birth isn't a system where that could be processed. When birth went into the hospital, uh, from the community, the home, uh, into the hospital, and that was probably about 50-ish years ago um, in Australia because prior to that it was in the community. Um, you know, it was that is that rapid processing of women. You know, it was, we, we worked out that if you can induce women, then they would have had their baby so the doctor doesn't have to be on call. You know, he can, he can go back to bed and have a good, good night's sleep. And then we want them out of the hospital quite rapidly because so to do that, because you're making room for the next person, but to do that, you have to have be shoving a baby on a breast, trying to force it to feed. Uh, and then we've got breastfeeding complications. So women are now not able to breastfeed because it's just, it's just been, they've been set up to fail. And, and this, the, the system continues to fail women in every single regard. Um, and I really do think it comes back to that systemization of childbirth, pregnancy, birth postnatal care yeah in, industrialization and capitalism it all kind of goes hand in hand doesn't it 100 percent, you know um and then you've got it's all fragmented care as well um so you know women's stress levels are high there's oh look it's it doesn't work it's just it's not working is there anything else you'd like to add rachel um given that your insight and the campaign that you were involved with and subsequently lost your job, um, you know, any words of wisdom for other areas that are facing the chop as far as maternity services go or, you know, 
maybe they're feeling that they're getting, you know, a decent amount of, I guess, the population demographics is changing and they should be having birth in their area. What would you say to those women and families? I think it's really important to lobby and to speak up if if you feel like maternity services should be protected. Uh, and I think mothers and babies should be protected. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. Uh, it, it did cost me a lot. Um, but in saying that, I think the, the process now um, has been made much more transparent rather than a dictatorship and this paternalistic point of view saying, oh, well, we know what's best for you. We think this without any research, without any um, um, consumer collaboration, without uh, community involvement being dictated to, that was not okay. Um, they, they didn't run the numbers properly. They didn't apply the rural birthing index. And this went back and forth and we, we begged them and, and, and tried to have reasonable discussions with them, but they weren't listening. So having gone to the health minister and he did, and that was in part with um, the, the Bush baby crisis with all the media as well, uh, and they did stand up and listen. And I, I think the process has been uh, transparent through clinical excellence and as that's been, their findings have now been applied. It's not the outcome we wanted, um, but I think it's somewhat more transparent than what it was anyway. I just don't like the divide between the, the HHSs. I, I don't think that's reasonable. Um, but I think it, I do would suggest that people stand up and fight for maternity services. Once you've lost it, you don't get it back. And I think that's really important. And Beatles are a prime example of that, where we have actually had a full staff of midwives uh, and, and now down to but one. Yeah, it it's not just maternity services that are affected, which we talked about Everything. earlier. It's the whole thing. And then you've lost midwives and now you've got nurses trying to fill in, which is not – and it's not actually even the intention of the capability framework at a level one either. So it's – um, no, it's certainly deviated from all intentions. Um, I'll pop – I might pop some links in the show notes to some of the media um, and if there's any other resources that you wanted to share because I know you did your master's in primary care. Is that correct? Um, I did my master's in advanced clinical midwifery. Yeah. Uh, and I did uh, a lot of research on delayed cord clamping actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. Awesome. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll pop those in the show notes. I really appreciate you coming on, um, Rachel, and hopefully we've provided a little bit of inspiration and education around rural maternity services. And if you're in one of those areas, perhaps, yeah, inspired you to, to really take action and, and lead on getting either your maternity services reinstated or at least not lost. Thanks for having me, Alicia. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionists, that type A personality and those who have been indoctrinated um, into that people-pleasing model, you can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.